Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Dr. Sleep, Part 3, Matters of Life and Death. Let's start the show. Dan, with the help of Dr. John and Abra's father, Dave, ambushes the true knot. But Crow isn't there, having left his allies early to kidnap Abra and Billy. Dan and Abra swap minds to kill Crow. Dan, as Dr. Sleep, helps Abra's great-grandmother pass over and confirms a suspicion he has. Finally, Abra, with the encouragement of Dan, speaks with Rose the Hat and goads her into a confrontation. So, Sean, Uncle Dan, huh? Uncle Dan, what a twist. Jay, I've read this book, I don't know, within the last three years. I saw the movie within the last three years. And somehow I've totally forgotten this plot point, which I think is supposed to, <laughs> which I think is supposed to be the big twist that we find out that Dan is actually Abra's uncle. He doesn't just play one in front of the library when they're telling stories to each other. And Lucy's half sister. Whoa, huh? I was certainly surprised by this, but I did not read the book or see the movie like you. So you were right to be surprised. I was just dense. I just finished one of our earlier episodes, and we were. You especially were wondering, like, oh, what's the deal with Abra touching her mouth all the time? Is that some sort of way that King's trying to indicate that, you know, she's a dry alcoholic or she has those tendencies? And I said something that made it sound like, oh, that's sort of interesting, Jay. I wonder, like, I knew something, but in fact, I didn't know anything. <laughs> in fact, it is it is totally supposed to be that, that somehow Abra has picked up this tick that uh, Jack Torrance has, and somehow it's in the family, this tendency to touch one's mouth in a, in, a, in a way. So yeah, all the pieces that King sort of sprinkled out earlier throughout the novel sort of come to a head here. And Dan confirms it with Conchetta, mm -hmm. Abra's great-grandmother, before doing his doctor sleep duties. And he tells Abra and, uh, well, he tells Lu Lucy at first that this is what the deal is. And everyone's sort of shocked. Yeah. And like you said, you were surprised. I was surprised. So I think the big question is, does this matter, Jay? That's a great question. Because I'm not sure that it does. I guess I don't mind that that's the case. And maybe, this is just me speculating here, maybe King wanted to write a story originally where, where Dan had a child, and that child also had The Shining, and then this was going to be the story of Dan's child but then wanted to make Dan a certain type of person, give him the, the struggles that he gave him with the alcoholism and things like that. So to square that circle, he basically made Abra somebody else's child and then rerouted the family tree, if you will, to, to what we have on the page. And I'm okay with that. Just It's fine. But I think if they weren't related at all, it's okay. Like, not everybody needs to be related to Darth Vader, you know? Uh, 
to, for this, these stories to work. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. I see where you're going with this thought that, you know, if Dan, Dan had a child and it's showing him try to break the cycle that has been in the family from Danny's grandfather to Jack and Jack to Dan. And, but that's a different story that I don't think either one of us wants to read. The way that King handled Dan dealing with his alcoholism in the first part, we both agreed was really well done. There doesn't need to be further of that. And again, I don't think it matters whether or not Abra's related or not. It doesn't do any harm to the story. I think if anything, it's sort of weird retroactively. You never got the sense in The Shining that Jack was a womanizer and would cheat on his wife. He might not have been the best of husbands, but you didn't get the sense that like he was off sleeping with his students or or, or cheating on Wendy. Did, did you? Like I, I, I didn't get that. I didn't either. It seemed like he had had many sexual experiences before getting married. Right. But that was something that was obvious, open, and understood and accepted by everybody involved. Right. Wendy was the one who would laugh when he would joke about how many topiaries he used to have to trim. Right. She was a-okay with her husband having had you know, sexual experience before their relationship began. Yep. And it was always portrayed that, that Jack had a lot of problems, but uh, stepping out on his wife was not one of them. No. Now, what is sort of maybe nice about this is that there's all these what seem like coincidences. Dan is actually Lucy's half-sister, Abra's uncle. He ends up in Fraser, which is very close by to Abra. You know, the, the true knot is at the overlook. Like all these things that sort of come together and seem like coincidence maybe tightens the story up because it's not coincidence, right? Like maybe mm -hmm. Dan's drawn to Fraser because it is near to Abra and it has the special power and, and all these things. So I do think that some of that might work pretty well. Again, it's 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 a nice to have, but it it wouldn't have ruined my story if if they weren't related. And I, you know, I'm going to be interested watching the movie because maybe the movie leaves this out, and that's what another reason I don't remember it. Hmm. I don't know, so uh, we'll have to see. I'm sure our sharp-eared uh, listeners are, have been yelling into their MP3 players. You guys, come on! They're MP3 players. <laughs> <laughs> They're vinyl record players. They're Microsoft Zunes. <laughs> but I wonder if maybe this isn't maybe a coincidence that all these things are happening, that maybe there's some sort of higher power at work here, if you'll allow me that. Oh, if AA will allow you that? If AA will allow me that. I mean, the whole idea is that there is a higher power at work and you have to let yourself up to that higher power. That's part of the AA, as far as I understand it. And so maybe Dan is realizing that there is a higher power that put him in touch with his half-niece and half-sister, and I guess it would be his actual niece, his niece and his half-sister, and getting him in the right place. And maybe that is a coincidence of sorts. Or is it a kind of fate? And in Dark Tower parlance, the word for fate is ka. Uh, now you're talking. Is it fate? Is it Ka? Is it the Dark Tower itself that is moving the chess pieces around to be in just the right place for just the right things to happen at just the right time? Yep, that could be. This section is interesting because the True Knot have a lot of resources on their side. They're long-lived. They're very wealthy. 
they have this tendency to be able to escape notice from regular people or the rubes as they call them. Mm-hmm. And you would think with all those resources at their back, capturing one pre-teenage girl wouldn't be that hard. And even Rose is the leader of the True Knot. She understands that Abra has a strong amount of power, but she downplays that with some of the others in her group. Like she warns them like, hey, this girl's powerful and she'll be able to feed us, but you know, be careful, be careful, be careful. And yet I did not get a real sense of danger from any of them. And I think a lot of that is because the true not underestimates the rubes here. And it is very easy for Dan and company to ambush them. Like, like they just draw them out and basically assassinate them. Yeah. And then even when Abra is captured, it doesn't take long for them to get out of it and and kill Crow, who has captured Abra and Billy. And I wonder what your thoughts are on all that. Well, you forgot one of their other and probably most important advantage is that each one of them has a kind of variation of the Shining too. That's right. Snakebite Annie has one of the more effective tools where she can just walk up to people and tell them to go to sleep. Yep. And she does that to Dan and almost ends their plan before it even gets a chance to begin because he falls right to sleep. I think it's that complacency that they have in their own powers of persuasion, control, and things like that that have made them much more likely to underestimate their victims. Because if there's anybody who has any sense of who they really are, the threat that they actually represent, then they might be prepared. And in this case, they were. And because they were prepared, even though they were three bumbling idiots with (laughs) no real right to have been successful, they still were. Because of the fact that the True Knot grossly underestimated their foes or their target in this case. But it still seems so unlikely that it would happen. And yet it does. This is a worried father, a pediatrician, and an orderly. And they somehow are able to like shoot guns that they don't know how to use randomly in random directions and everything works out for them. And the only real hitch in the plan is the fact that one of them had the presence of mind to split their number and try like have a forked attack. Yes. And even that doesn't last very long in terms of going the right way for their plan. I remember when I read this book originally. And I won't say it's a problem, but one of the issues I had with the book is that I never felt that Abra and Danny were in any huge amount of danger. That it seemed like with all of Abra's powers that she had, that she sort of had this plot armor and that she was going to be okay. And I think at least with this reading, I realized that maybe I can correct that by thinking that the True Knot just did underestimate them throughout. And so that's sort of their Achilles heel is that they're able to to let these rubes who they think so less of, right? I, the, mm-hmm. Isn't it in this section at one point, I think Dan says something to like, how could you do this to us? And they're like, well, you're not humans. We're the real humans. Just like this, they, they just see the rubes as lesser life forms in some way. They're just food. Yeah. They're just food. Like it would be like us thinking of a pig or a cow, right? Like who cares? And so- when you think like that, it's very easy to underestimate it. And when you have somebody who's as strong as Abra is, or Dan, who still has a pretty strong amount of The Shining, enough to at least 
swap brains with Abra for a little bit, even though she's drugged, they're able to do it. I think that Rose is the only one who has a true inkling of Abra's power, but I'm starting to think that even Rose is wrong about how powerful Abra is. Before Rose was turned, when she was still a human being, she very likely had one of the more powerful instances of the Shining. And now as a member of the True Knot, maybe that power is even increased and gets incredibly strong when she has just eaten steam, right? So Rose thinks of herself as, on a scale of 1 to 100, she's 100, right? And she probably thinks Abra is one of the most powerful people she's come across in a long time, and maybe she's like an 80. But in fact, maybe Abra's like a 1,000. <laughs> yeah. And Rose just doesn't even have it in her inner imagination that somebody could be more powerful than herself. She sees her as a rival, as a threat because of that rivalry, because she sees her as, as like almost a peer in terms of power. Yeah. But I think that she might be totally off base and that Abra is like way, way more powerful. And just like when Halloran was first introducing himself to Danny. Yes. He said, I'm like a candle and you're like a lighthouse. It is very clear that as powerful as Danny was, he's the candle to Abra's lighthouse. Yep. So it's just like an exponential increase again in terms of shining power. So we really, as the audience, have maybe a stronger sense of just how powerful Abra might be. And I think if anything is Rose's undoing here, it's going to be that underestimating the rubes just like all the rest of them have. Yeah. And you know, it's not even just the power piece because I, I totally agree with you that that's a big part of it. Like she doesn't have any sense of how powerful Abra is, but you don't get the sense from the other members of the true knot that they're overly intelligent. Yeah. They're just kind of like random people because they're just living their lives. Right. Like, and it would be very easy to just roll around in an RV and every once in a while eat, but like, Rose is very smart yeah. and a leader and has charisma. And that's one of the big reasons she's able to lead the true knot, even though there's people who are older than her, have been in the position she was before, but like she's got sort of everything, the charisma, the sexual prowess, the intelligence, and the shining powers to, to lead this group of people who really look to her for everything. Like, when are we going to eat? Where, how are we going to get there? What are we going to do? Like, she's got all the plans. And she probably thinks there's no way a 12-year-old girl is smarter than me. Mm -hmm. She obviously doesn't realize that there's also Dan there as well. But even so, Abra is more than likely to hold her own. And I do think that last chapter is really good about how they're able to goad her into acting against her will. Yeah. Because again, I think that that's part of her underestimate. underestimate. Like she knows that she's being goaded. She says, I'm not going to let her goad me. And then it happens anyway. She even spills her coffee. <laughs> yeah, but she does say you have to clean up your own mess, which is good advice. That's right. That makes me think of death. And Sean, there's a line in this section of the book that death was no less a miracle than birth. Hmm. Well, I'm to talk about that for a minute. Dan has this power to help people die. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a, a more elegant way to put it. But he does so in a way that he gives them this clear vision of the best points in their lives. And in doing so, sends them off to whatever is next, happy, content, 
and fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I, I think that that is an incredible thing. I couldn't think of a better gift to give a person, even if it wasn't at the moment of their death. Just having that about that, if I could do that by like shaking someone's hand and then they have that feeling or they get reminded of those wonderful moments, I would love to shake everybody's hand. That would be great. But because of this, Dan maybe is singularly aware that death is a really special moment in life. Mm -hmm. And just like before a person exists and then they are born, that's a miracle. So when all of those switches get turned back off at death, it requires a, a miracle too. And I think that that is very poetic. I don't know if it's true. I don't even know if I think it's something that I agree with, but I love the idea. Yes, the idea of it is fantastic and contrasts so much with what the true knot is about and how horrible their deaths are, right? They're mm-hmm. in such amount of pain, they cycle in and out. So like, whereas w- with Dan and the people he is with, it's sort of this easing into, and then like you said, it's a turning off or moving on. And with them, they they go through it multiple times, the true knot, like these cycles of cycling in and cycling out. And so they're alive and then they're not alive and then they're alive and they're not alive. And it's painful for them and it's horrible. And it is contrasted with the fact that they have always, we talked about this earlier, they always have wanted to live forever and that mm-hmm. their whole thing was that they did. And Dan is able to see and and give people like you had this finite amount of time. This is what you were given. What did you do in that time that were the pleasant and happiest moments of your life? And let me give those back to you and let me remember those. And he does it in this scene, in this section with um, Conchetta, Abra's grandma, great-grandmother, where he is able to ease her in, even though she's been in a lot of pain from breaking her hip and some bones and in, in a bad shape. And so it is poetic and it is a wonderful thought, whether or not it's true or not. I think it's something good for us to think about. Is ultimately contrasted with the last scene of this section when Dan looks into the mirror and sees the death flies around his own face. Yikes. Which was another shocking piece that I didn't remember from previously, but um, probably means a lot, especially when this whole book has been about that idea of death and, and how does he help people cross over and he sees his own flies. What do you take from it? Much like how you forgot that Dan was Abra's uncle, I had kind of forgotten about the death flies. It's been since Billy had some death flies on him, and Dan used that awareness to help Billy get emergency surgery and be cured of, of I guess he had some sort of gut cancer, stomach cancer, or the like. It's been since then that in this book, and a lot of things have happened in this book, I kind of forgot all about the death flies. It seemed like that was going to be a really important thing. Thinking back, it was really important when Dan was drunk all the time. It seemed really important when it saved Billy's life. So maybe death flies are not just bad news. Maybe they're just, maybe rather than being bad news, they are information and you can use that information various ways. So I guess what I'm saying is it looks like Dan might die or maybe he can do something about that because he has this early warning. You might be right. 
And I think that that's going to be a good segue into our next section, which is connections to The Shining. Because if you remember, we spent a lot of time talking about the foreshadowing of DeCaloran's death. He's filling out a will. He smells oranges. He knows he's in trouble. He has all these close calls. And we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, Dick's going to die. Dick's going to die. Dick's going to die. And, and sure enough, he was fine. So I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen to Dan. I don't know. But despite King always talking about Ka and fate, I don't think everything is set in stone. I do think that characters do have some sort of free will and not everything is inevitable. Fair enough. So what you're saying is that my analysis of the death flies is moderately fascinating. I think so. But as I've already proven, I've forgotten a lot about this book, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> the rest of this book is as much a mystery to you as it is to me. It's an empty Fantastic. box. It's a black box that I have not yet penetrated, so we'll see. Do you have any other connections to The Shining? I found a couple when I was making my way through this section. The most obvious one is that at one point, Dan is walking around thinking something associated with Tony. You will remember what was forgotten. You will remember what was forgotten. And he is literally trying to remember what you will remember what was forgotten meant. <laughs> and then he remembers. It was the boiler. Yeah. The boiler was what's forgotten. And it was the fact that it was forgotten that saved his life and culminated in the explosion and destruction of the Overlook Hotel. So that's like an, a textual connection. It's just right there. Right. Just a memory of, of The Shining. I think it's also important to remember because if you've only seen the movie The Shining, you might not remember that the Overlook blew up and that the boiler exploded. And so- Well, you can't remember what didn't happen. That's true. You can't remember that. But it's King- reminding people who may have been a long time since they've read The Shining also. Mm. Hey, don't forget, in my version of The Shining, this is what happened. <laughs> my version. <laughs> the original recipe. Yes. Extra crispy, not so much. Except no imitations. Another connection I found was hornets. Rose was really angry at being goaded by Abra and... She shut her eyes and pictured her writhing on the ground, her mouth stuffed with stinging hornets and hot sticks jutting out of her eyes. No one talks to me like this, not ever. And hornets, I, I thought, that's a very specific thing. Because mm. hornets were a really big deal in The Shining. It wasn't bees that Rose was imagining. It wasn't some other insect it was specifically hornets yes and shining connection right there yeah i will say the hornets weren't overly effective in the shining just uh a note that maybe rose isn't going to be as effective as she thinks she is interesting or maybe not that's moderately fascinating we already touched on this but the fact that dan and lucy are half siblings was a big reveal but why I want to call this out as a connection to The Shining is that Dan reveals this to Lucy and it is revealed to us, the audience, via a mirror. Mm. And while mirrors were more of a big deal in Kubrick's movie than in King's book, it was still important to use reflection in the book in that, for one thing, like Red Drum was always just murder backwards. And we were 
you know, knocked over the head with red rum, red rum all throughout the book. And it was only when it was seen in a mirror that its true meaning was apparent to the right people. So the fact that Lucy learns about her identity as a member of Dan's family through a mirror, I thought was an interesting way to connect it to The Shining. Yeah, I thought that was a good one. I hadn't noticed that at all. And uh, it was good. Again, I think I was probably so shocked that this happened and I totally forgot about it that I was like, (laughs) just read over the mirror part. I I love how you made that earlier reference though, to like how everyone's related to Darth Vader. Because again, knowing that Ewan McGregor's in the movie, it just sort of builds on, hey, everyone's got to be connected in some way to the Skywalkers, even, even Lucy, I guess. Yep. Sean, did you find any Dark Tower thinnies? J.I. scoured the book. There's lots of numbers because both the True Knot and Dan and his posse were driving on all sorts of highways through New England and upstate New York. And I very diligently added up those numbers. But I had no Dark Tower thinnies whatsoever. How about you? Likewise, I was looking at hotel rooms and all sorts of things. I, I found none in this section of the book. But listeners, if you spotted any thinnies in this section, please let us know. Yeah, we'd love to see it. How about yucking it up, Jay? This one isn't that yucky, but I wanted to call out the description of Rose's face slash skull when she unhinges her jaw. It it made me think of some of the effects in Beetlejuice. Ah. So the description is her jaw unhinged to her chest. And the bottom of her head became a dark hole in which a single tooth jutted. Her eyes bled downward and darkened. Her face became a doleful death mask with the skull standing out clear beneath. And so this is where I was picturing that Beetlejuice like stretched out skin face where part of the skull is visible through the giant deformed mouth and all that stuff just like. The eyes aren't where they're supposed to be. The skin isn't where it's supposed to be. The mm. the bone of the skull is visible. Kind of freaked me out in my imagination. So let's sit it here. This was the closest to something uh, gross in the section. I think the section was pretty tame. I will admit that when I saw her jaw unhinged, the first thing that I thought of was Diana, the leader of the visitors in V, the miniseries, which, Ooh. and then also there was V, the miniseries two, I think I don't know if it's called V two, but there's a, a sequel to the miniseries V the return maybe. And then there's V the TV show. And believe me as a, as a young teenager, I ate up. All- Do you mean the reboot that, that came out like eight years ago? No, not the reboot. I, there was a TV series in the eighties even. So there's two miniseries in a TV show. And I watched the hell out of all of them because teenage Sean was all about that. And there was a pretty neat special effect where as, as good of a special effect for TV in the 80s could have been, where Diana's jaw unhinged as she sw- she swallowed a... It's a guinea pig, I believe. A guinea pig, yes. Before they revealed themselves to be lizards. So, big fan of V. I watched one or two episodes of the reboot, and uh, I love the fact that Morena Baccarine, is that her name, was in it? But I, mm-hmm. didn't, I, I didn't watch it for very long. She was Diana, I believe, right? Yes. Anyhow, uh, join Jay and I next year for our, our V miniseries podcast. 
It'll be called the V-Cast. <laughs> <laughs> Two guys to the earth came with a slightly disguised metaphor about Nazism in the form of lizard creatures. That's right. And uh, I'm sure we'll find an excuse to have a special episode about John Carpenter's They Live. Of course. I mean, it's basically the same story. But it has more fight scenes. Uh, yeah, and, and also, They Live was more of a critique of capitalism than fascism, but yeah. Sure, sure. See, this is why we need to have a very special episode. <laughs> very special episodes. <laughs> Sean, we're having a lot of fun. Is it time for fun stuff? No, it's not. Usually... I, I ask you that question every time, and it always is. This time it's not. Oh, man. What are you saying? It's time to thank our patrons. And you, you know what? If you're out there supporting the show, I mean, maybe you want to give us a little extra money so that we can get that V uh, podcast started a little bit earlier. <laughs> That's right. You never know what will happen if you give us some patron cash. But seriously, if you are a patron, thank you so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. You know, as a patron, that you get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. And as soon as we're done with Dr. Sleep, one of our bonus podcast episodes is going to be the movie Dr. Sleep. And we could see what else Sean forgot from watching that movie a few years ago. Uh, so that'll be great. And you don't want to miss that. So you'll visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more about becoming a patron and supporting the show. And not only do you get bonus content, like Sean just mentioned, but as a patron, you get to help the show stay ad-free for all of our listeners. So thank you to all of our existing patrons. Thank you to all of our future patrons. And if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Yeah, that's great stuff. Hey, Jay, is it time for fun stuff? Well, I guess it is now. <laughs> what do you got for us, Sean? All right. So we both said how much we like that final scene in which Abra is goading on Rose the Hat. And as I was reading it, and she just kept saying the word coward, coward, coward over and over again. And that's what really sort of got stuck in Rose's head and really said, yeah, I'm going to go get this girl. It reminded me so much of Back to the Future, Marty McFly's downfall is the fact that he can't be called chicken, right? That that's the worst mm -hmm. thing that could happen to him. And I, I thought the same of Rose the Hat. And I just wish she was portrayed by Michael J. Fox instead of <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson in the movie. <laughs> what? <laughs> all right, maybe not. It, it would have uh, been an interesting casting choice. Hey, for all I know, maybe Michael J. Fox does play her in the movie. Don't remember the movie very well. <laughs> yeah, we can't trust your memory on this at all. I, I was always a little bit annoyed that uh, at that retcon about the not being called a coward, I, there was never any of that in the first movie, right? Suddenly in Back to the Future 2, it was don't call him a, uh, a coward. And that's... Well, I think the first movie, there was very much that Marty was embarrassed that his father never stood up for himself. And you could take that to be that his father was maybe not as brave as he could have been to stand up to Biff and, and Marty on the other hand would have, and, and does in the first movie, right? Like he stands mm -hmm. up to, to Biff a couple of times and it does get him in trouble. Um, so I, I just don't think it was as well spelled out as it was in the second movie. Well, yeah. I mean, in the second one, they kind of, they were a little more ham-fisted about it yeah. and that's why it became like a central theme. So join Sean and I for our <laughs> podcast 
Back to the Future cast, too. Two guys <laughs> go back to Back to the Future. <laughs> I'm certain you have a good fun stuff. Do you not? I have one that I was kind of chuckling because there's a, a really messed up flickering sign in front of the crappy hotel where Abra and Billy stay. And it says, it's got, basically it's got missing letters. That just reminded me of Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise. Classic. <laughs> There's a scene towards the end of the movie, and if you're familiar with the Revenge of the Nerds series, you know that each of their movies ends in some big montage where they need to overcome all odds and win the day through some machinations where they throw the biggest party ever or something like that. And in this case, they're in their resort hotel, which is called the Hotel Corral Essex. And the nerds modify the sign so that some of the letters are missing, just like Billy and, and Abra have to experience. So they change Hotel Corral Essex to say hot oral sex. <gasps> and suddenly, thousands of people want to come and check out this hotel, and it begins the biggest party ever. And the nerds save the day. Way to go, nerds. I'll put a link to a YouTube clip so that you can enjoy that without having to sit through the entire movie. Or we could just put a link into our new podcast, the Revenge of the Nerds cast <laughs> with Jay and Sean. Two guys to the Revenge of the Nerds too. Oh, no, that's a good one. I did not make the connection between the missing letters in Dr. Sleep and Revenge of the Nerds 2. I don't know how I didn't make that connection. Sort of shocking. That's such an obvious connection, Sean. I will say one connection I did make, and maybe it's because I recently read The Executioners by John D. McDonald and also watched both versions of Cape Fear, is that the ambush that Dan sets up reminded me a lot of that book because the true knot to this point has not done anything bad to Abra and or Dan. Mm. And they realize, Dan and Abra, that they cannot handle this within the confines of the law, which is very much how the lawyer character in the in Cape Fear realizes it as well. And so he has to put his family up as bait in order to get Max Katie to take some sort of action that will allow him to then kill Max Katie within the law and get away with it. And knowing how big of a fan King is of John D. McDonald, I wondered if he drew on that for this, because again, like I said, the True Knot didn't do anything wrong, but they sort of set up this ambush to kill them. And it made me wonder for half a second who the real bad guys are here. The fact that the book is called The Executioners is not about Max Cady, the bad guy, but really about the Gregory Peck character who who ends up doing the killing of Max Cady. Mm -hmm. Again, it's justified. We know that the True Knot have killed young children and are on their way to kill Abra. So uh, that's not to say that. But the ambush is a nice way of of circling that, right? We can't do anything. These people are working within the law. They haven't done anything wrong. We have to catch them doing something bad, and that's what they've done here. And the ambush works uh, to great success for Dan. Yeah. Despite our incredulity, <laughs> it, it just- uh, it, it works. It, it does work out. And it's so convenient that when the True Knot members die, they just vanish. Yeah, you, no, no cleanup. <laughs> like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Exactly like Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
they become more powerful than they could imagine. Yes. I'm sure the snake bite Annie force ghost will show up later on in the novel. Mm-hmm. I think it's time for other worlds than these. Indeed. What have you been up to, Jay? I recently discovered and immediately fell in love with a Peacock original series called The Resort. Mm. And it is still so new that I do believe that um, new episodes are currently airing. Uh, I'm a little bit behind the curve, so I don't know if it's fully aired the first season yet. It's a comedy, so it's definitely funny, but it's also a mystery. And it's about a couple who go to a resort for an all-inclusive vacation to celebrate their 10th wedding anniversary. And while they are there, they uncover a mystery and decide to spend their their time on vacation rather than floating on rafts in the, the swimming pool and drinking cocktails. They want to solve this mystery instead. All right. And I think that's a really interesting premise all by itself where this mystery goes and the types of characters they encounter and the places that they go makes it even better. I'll leave out any further details so as not to spoil anything, but the show stars William Jackson Harper, who you would recognize from The Good Place. He played Cheaty. So if you watched that show, you would definitely recognize him. He was also in Midsommar. Oh, really? I have not seen that. And... It also stars Kristen Milioti, and I believe she was in 10 Cloverfield Lane, amongst many other things. And you'll recognize a handful of other folks, too. It's so far, every episode has been really great, and I've just been like really anxious to get right back to it. Very good. That is the resort on Peacock. Peacock, eh? I didn't know you had any other channels besides HBO Max, so it's good to see you yeah. sp- spreading your wings a little bit. Spreading my peacock wings, if oh, you Oh, yes. I'm going to go a little bit off the reservation here. I've been playing this game with my gaming group called Escape the Dark Castle. It's a very simple game. You play a prisoner along with your, your group who is trying to escape this castle that you've been imprisoned in for a long amount of time, and you're emaciated. You don't have many tools or things to help you, but you're making a break for it. And you have to get through 15 obstacles before facing the Lord of the castle, who's the big boss guy. And my gaming group and I have been playing it pretty regularly after one of our other games, because it's a quick game that you can get in and out pretty quick. And so it's like this nice little palate cleanser after our, our regular game. And we have never won. We have played like 20 games and just not winning and our group gets frustrated. We're like, let's play a second one. Let's play a third one. And eventually we have to give it up because we we have no chance of winning. Well, dear listeners, let me tell you, this past week, we finally won Escape the Dark Castle and it was glorious and we were very happy about it. And we continued to talk about our victory on text the next day about how much fun it was. So Escape the Dark Castle, it's a fun game. There's a couple different expansions for it. There's another version that takes place in space that's called Escape the Dark Sector. We have not played any of the expansions or the space version because we are like, hey, we can't even win the first one. We're not going to try something new and spend more money. But now that we've won, maybe we'll branch out. Anyhow, that's called Escape the Dark Castle. Can you give an example of one of the challenges, I guess? Yeah, so you open a door and you come across a 
beastly creature with the fangs of a spider and it attacks you and you each have certain traits that you're good at, wisdom, cunning, and might, and you have to use those in combination to defeat these creatures. Or there might be another one where you come across a witch who bargains with you and says, can I read your fortune? And you must choose to, will I let her read my fortune or will I not? Um, but each one of these cards takes like 30 seconds to read and play through, and then you're on to the next one. So it, it is a pretty quick game. It's got these big, thick, solid dice that you get to roll, which is also cool. That sounds nice. I, I didn't realize it was that fantastical in, in nature. I, I was picturing something like Count of Monte Cristo, like Edmund Dantes getting out of his cell. And, you know, you have to loosen a brick and then dig a tunnel and then... No, more, I uh, think more Dungeons and Dragons, bats, doppelgangers, guards, and other terrible monsters. Got it. Sounds cool. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we conclude our coverage of Dr. Sleep with part four, Roof of the World, and Until You Sleep. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. First, I'll treat our listeners to the sound of a Rubik's Cube. There you go. This is the sound of my voice. The voice of a new generation. What am I kidding? I'm nearly 50 years old. I'm not a new generation of anything. In my head, I always think it's bump, 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 but it's actually dun, dun, dun.